Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. I don't know about you, I've been talking to you this morning and finding out about kind of what your Christmas looks like, and how many of you have family coming in for Christmas? Do you have that going on, and you're kind of making preparation, or maybe they've already showed up? Um, how many of you, and, and maybe how many of you are nervous about the fact that you've got family that's coming, because there's that wild card one, right, that you don't. How many of them are with you, and you're like hoping you don't have to look at them or anything? You can't raise your hand because they're with you, right? The, 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 and, and you're already explaining to your kids about Aunt so-and-so that's coming, and like, now you be nice. You just be nice. They're only going to be here for a couple of days. You be nice. Um, you know, you're already giving sermons to your husband about, don't you leave me. Go getting wood five times an hour. We don't need that much wood. You stay here in this house and help me with your uncle. We could entertain our, our, each other for hours probably if we just gave each one the mic and gave, them one, you gave you a, a shot at one Christmas story and let you get up and tell your, your Christmas story um, about that, that crazy aunt or uncle or maybe it was your brother. I didn't tell the first service this. I'm, I'll tell you this story real quick. My, for Christmas Eve, we used to get together all my dad's side of the family was a Christmas Eve thing. And so here's what you need to understand. My dad was a truck driver, over-the-road truck driver. And my uncle, his brother, was a Kentucky State trooper. Can you imagine those conversations at Christmas time? And so my dad always had the latest fuzz buster or CB radio, anything that he could find that could help him just get the load there a little quicker. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so he, he would try to figure out where the police were and avoid them. And of course, my uncle was all about trying to catch truck drivers doing that. And so one night they start, you know, the, the bravados going back and forth and the machismo and, and my uncle Jimmy <clears throat> looked at my dad and he said, my dad, they call him Buzzy. And, and my uncle Jimmy is the one that gave him that nickname when he was little. He couldn't say brother. So it came out Buzzy. So my dad grew up his whole life has been Buzzy. And he said, Buzzy, I'm going to tell you what's a fact. If I ever catch you in the state of, in, of Kentucky on one of our interstates and you've got your truck going too fast, I'm going to pull you over and I'm going to crawl up into the cab of your tuck, truck. I'm going to take your fuzz buster and throw it over the guardrail. Well, at this point, you can't wait to hear what my dad's going to say. And my dad's about twice as big as my Uncle Jimmy. He looked at my Uncle Jimmy and said, and I'm going to tell you what's a fact, little uh, big brother. If you do that, I'm going to throw you over the guardrail after it. So that's the kind of stuff I got to hear growing up, you know. Um, we, had a, we had young guys in our family, as all families do, that when they're younger, you know, 20, 18, 21, that, about that age. Um, we had an aunt that like, kind of liked to, to flirt with those boys. Yeah, I know, that's not, I mean, probably shouldn't even say that in church, but I mean, that's what, that's what happened. You're like, man, I want to be at Barta Brett's Christmas. That would be fun. Um, Interestingly enough, she never flirted with me. I always felt like I got left out. It was all the other guys. It wasn't me. So, you know, we've all got that person, that, that, that crazy aunt or uncle, that person that you don't want to talk about, the one that you, you prepare the rest of your family for. There's always one, and every family seems to have one. And uh, here's the really cool thing. Jesus had that going on, too. I mean, there are people in his extended family, it's just unbelievable some of the things that they did and got themselves into and involved in. We've been looking at this Christmas story through the lens of, the, of what Matthew wrote in the beginning of his gospel and some of the people that he 
included in his opening. And he seems to weave some pretty odd people into the story. Matthew makes sure that he includes some people with their, that you would just, there's nothing else you would say about them other than that they were somewhat dysfunctional. Not only did he give us a, a genealogy, as we're going to see, but his genealogy, which normally consisted of men, also had some women sprinkled into it, which, you know, normally you didn't see that a whole lot. There are lots of people in there that you, you just, if you were going to make up your own genealogy for Jesus, and, you know, you would not have put some of these people in there. And here's what we're discovering in this series. It is the point of Christmas, and, and the point is this. God did not go out of his way to find all of the righteous people and bring the Savior through all of the righteous people. That's not what he did. God used some people that had a pretty sketchy past. God used some people that you, you know, you would kind of compare them to your life and go, well, I'd do a better job in life than, than that one does. In fact, it seems like just the opposite is true. It seems like God went out of his way to find dysfunctional people, to find people who didn't have it all tacked down, to find those people who didn't always make the, the best decision or, or get it right. And I think it, it's, it's as if Matthew's saying, don't miss the kind of people that God used to get the Messiah here in the first place because the kind of people he used, it is in not forgetting those people that we remember the point of Christmas. And here's really the craziest part of all this, the person that Jesus is most closely associated with in his genealogy might be the most dysfunctional of them all. You hear it over and over in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, Jesus, well, in the New Testament you would hear that, Jesus the Son of. And there's always a name that's associated with Jesus, Jesus the Son of. It's not his father, it goes generations back. The man that Jesus is most closely associated with in terms of this idea of Jesus the Son of, so that everybody knows that he's the Messiah, he's the craziest, most amazing story of them all, and his name is David, Jesus the Son of David. And when Matthew gets to this part of the genealogy where he mentions David, he pauses. And, and he adds some things in there that you, you just wonder, why did he didn't have to do that? Because when he does it, we're tempted to go, oh, man, I, yeah, I remember that guy. I remember that part of the story when God decided to bring the Messiah. Why would God decide to bring the Messiah through that guy? And I think Matthew would say, well, that's the whole ballgame. That's really the point. Because Matthew, the tax collector, who did not have a good standing with God, Matthew, the tax collector, who's viewed by his Jewish, um, you know, distant relatives or Jewish race, would look at him and say, you know, you're a traitor to us. You, you've basically gone to work for the Roman government, and you pretty much extort from us. So we don't like you. The Romans are basically using you. You're, you're pretty much considered a traitor. It, so... Where church was concerned or God was concerned before he met Jesus, Matthew would have said, it's over for me. I mean, to the point that, you know, Matthew would have said, if I'm going to have any pleasure in this world, I better get it now because there's probably not going to be a heaven for me. It's probably not going to go very well for me. I, it's it's bad deal for me. So that was Matthew's story, the tax collector who found forgiveness and found God through this man, Jesus, whom he would follow for three years. And when he wrote this story, he wanted us all to know that it's okay for God to have chosen the sinful people that he did through whom to bring the Messiah because that's the point of the story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. 
Matthew chapter 1, we're introduced right off the bat. First sentence in the book, we're introduced to this man, David. Now, we'll be in 2 Samuel 8 in just a minute or two, but um, Matthew 1, here's how it starts. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, and then let's get right to it, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, he's skipping a bunch of generations, but he's saying to his Jewish audience that's, that's going to read this, I know you want to know if this guy who claimed to be the Messiah is related to the right people, specifically two people. And I know how important these two people are to you. Just let me start by telling you that he really is related to the two most important people, David and Abraham. So let's just put that out there. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, who everybody knew was a relative of Abraham. So, you know, good on you, David. Now, now I'm not going to put this all on the screen, but I am going to read it to you because I want to bring us up to where we're going to pick up today. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. We talked about those guys. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. If, you wanna, if you're into soap operas, you might want to look up the story of Tamar. Pretty interesting read. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Then we come to Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. There's a story for you. We know her as Rahab the harlot. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. That's at the point, you know, you come across Rahab and you, you want to cue the music. Dun, 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 you know, you're making a movie and you were doing all this, that when Rahab comes on the scene, it's like the music would change. Boaz, the father of Obed, who, Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And, it's a, and Matthew then, it's almost like he says, hold on, I'm not done yet with David, okay? I got more to tell you about David. And then he adds this, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. In other words, hold on a second, let's just stop and make sure that all the religious people are really uncomfortable, and let's bring this guy up, and let's make sure that everybody knows that King David fathered a son by a woman who had been married to Uriah. And so, all the scholars would say, yeah, we remember that story, why did you have to bring that up? You know, why did you have to go there? Why did you have to do that? And Matthew would say, well, because at this point of the story, I'm about to tell you, that is the point. I, I, you know, the story I'm going to tell you is a story about how you're not good enough on your own, how you can't stack up enough good works. You can't live the kind of life that would impress God enough to make him want to save you just based on your own merits. It's not a story about how to pile up a big list of things that I've done and say, God, Look at me and all the stuff that I've been able to do in your name, and aren't I awesome? Matthew's basically saying, that story's never going to get written, because you're not that good. Matthew would say, it, it's, it's not a, another, another one of those stories where, you know, the people were good people. Here's the thing. Religion is littered with those kind of stories about how to relate to God based on being good. And Matthew says, look, if you don't hear anything else I say, you got to know this is not another one of those stories. So let me highlight for you the sin and the crime and the dysfunction that was a part of just about every single person that God used through whom to bring the Messiah to us. Because that is the story, and that's what the story is about, and that's who the story is for. So the question is, why David? 
You hear it all throughout the Gospels. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of David. What was the big deal about David? Here's the story. You probably know most of the story of David. David began his life as a shepherd boy. He was one of eight sons who belonged to a man named Jesse. And at the time that, that, uh, of the story I'm going to tell you about, there's a man who's the king of Israel. His name is Saul. He's not a very good man. He doesn't have a great heart. But he was the king of Israel. And God said to Samuel the prophet, I'm about to anoint a new king over Israel. The king that is there now does not have a good heart, and there's some issues, and he's wearing me out, so I'm choosing a new king. And it's gonna be, this new king is going to come from the house of Jesse. Now imagine being Jesse on the day that this guy shows up, knocks on your door, looks you in the eye, and tells you that he's got good news for you. He is here to anoint a king for Israel, and that king is going to come from one of your sons. That's a pretty good day. You're about to become the dad of the king of Israel. That's a good day. Well, Jesse calls the boys in and he lines them all up and Samuel goes in there and he looks at the first one and, and you know, he, he looks pretty awesome and, and Samuel's thinking, surely this is the next king. I mean, he's firstborn, he's, you know, good and rugged and strong and he's older and handsome. I mean, surely this is the one. And Samuel's thinking to himself, this has got to be the king, the next king of Israel. And God says, pass. Come to number two. Well, he looks pretty good. It's got to be the one. He looks great. Nope. Number three's not good enough. Number four's not good enough. Samuel goes through the list of, of guys that's there in front of him, and God says no to every one of them. And it's at this point that I think maybe Jesse or, or uh, Samuel takes out his cell phone, looks at his GPS, and is like, did I come to the right house? Yeah, I mean, Jesse's house, that's where I, what it says. And he's a little confused, and he says, Jesse, do you, you have any other sons? And he's like, well, I, you know, yeah, the youngest, he's out, I got a boy out there, he's out there tending sheep, but he's not. I mean, you're talking about the next king, it wouldn't be him. Samuel says, you know what, I'm, I'm not even going to sit down till you get him in here. And they brought the little shepherd boy named David, a guy nobody thought would be the king. And God says, that's the guy. I know, Samuel, that's not the guy you would have chosen because what you're looking at is different than what I'm looking at. See, you look at the outside appearance of a man. That's what you're looking at. You're impressed by how big they are, how handsome they are, you know, what they look like. I'm looking at their heart, and I'm telling you, this guy's got a good heart. And so Samuel anoints David the next king. Now, you've got to keep in mind, David's young. He's not ready to be king right now. So this is all going to happen years down the line. But they anoint this kid as the next king. You know, David's like, well, that's cool. You know, probably wipe the oil off his face, whatever they used to anoint him. He's like, okay, I'm going to go back out with the sheep. I'll see you guys later. Have a great time. And then he probably got out there with the sheep and is thinking, what was all that? I mean, what in the world? David grows up. He finds favor with King Saul. He's a musician. He's a warrior. David's just this impressive guy. Time goes on. Saul is killed in battle. David becomes great friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. You can read about that in the Old Testament. Great story about friendship between Saul, uh, uh, between Jonathan and, and uh, David. And eventually the prophecy comes true. David becomes the king of Israel, and he's a good king. He's got a good heart. He's trying to do the right things 
tries to make things right and, and give God victory. You know, God gives him victory after victory after victory, successful. And one day, David is sitting in his palace, opulent, ornate, has anything that you could have possibly wanted in that culture and in that time. And he realizes, I live in this vast palace with all of this comfort. And he's looking down on the tabernacle, on the, uh, the place where they, they kept the Ark of the Covenant, where God lived. It's what they, you know, they said God lives there. And, and, and David looked down on that and he said, how can I live here when my God lives in a box, in a tent? That's not, that can't be. So I'm going to build a palace, I'm going to build a temple for God, and it's going to be the best temple that the world has ever seen. And so he begins to make preparation and build a temple, and God sends another, uh, a message to, through the prophet Nathan, and Nathan comes to David and and gives him this word, and I want to read this to you because this is why David is so closely associated with Jesus, because in this moment in time, at this point, God makes David a promise. And I want you to lock in on the promise that God makes to David. Not only does God make David a promise, but the language of this promise is such that God makes an unconditional covenant with David. And here's what it sounds like, 2 Samuel verse 7. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. This is a promise that God is making to David. Now understand, this is a thousand years before Jesus. This is 3,000 years ago. God makes this king a promise. He says, I'm going to make your name great in all the earth like all the great men. And, And here we are in 2016 still talking about David. Verse 12, when your days are over and, you're, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your office. <coughs> excuse me. Let me try that again. <clears throat> I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. In other words, your sons are the ones who are going to build the temple, David. That's not going to be you. Okay, that, that's, not, that's not you. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom, what's the word? Forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In this moment in time, God establishes an unconditional forever promise with David. And he said, David, here's the thing. I'm not, you're not going to be the one that gets to build the temple. That is not going to be your thing. But here's the thing. Whenever there's a king in Israel, that person who sits on the throne will have come through your line. And this, along with the other prophecies about David, allowed Old Testament scholars and the people of that particular culture to understand that when God sent the Messiah, the Messiah was going to come through the lineage of Abraham, then to David, then the Messiah. Because God made an unconditional promise to David. And he said, David, 
When your sons and your grandsons and your great-grandsons deviate from my paths, I am going to punish them like crazy. But I will not remove my promise that I'm making to you today. No matter what they do or how I have to discipline them, I will not break my promise to you. You will have an heir on the throne. As long as there is a throne, it's going to be your, one of your, it's going to be your heir. And ultimately, your name and your kingdom will be established forever and ever. So from that point on, Jewish scholars and historians understood that if there was ever to be a Messiah, the Messiah would have to come through the line of David. And sure enough, when you come to the New Testament, you find Matthew associating David with, Je- with Jesus, just like the prophecy said it would be. <laughs> but then something very interesting happens four years, or four chapters later. David gives God every reason in the world to break his promise. You know, God basically could have said, now hold it right there, David, enough is enough. Granted, I'm a God of mercy and grace, but David, daggone it, in light of what I've given you and how I've blessed you and what I've, how I've promised you, David, you were nothing. Your dad didn't even think you were king material. He didn't even invite you to the anointing party. He saw you as having no potential as king, but I lifted you up. I got you in there. I've placed you in this place. I have blessed you. If it had been me, I would have been saying to David, I've had enough. God had every reason to say that to David. Because one evening, David went to the wall of his palace when he should have been out to battle with his men. And he looked over the wall. And there was a woman bathing on her roof. And he saw her and he wanted her. And he called his servant in and he pointed to the woman and he said, who is that? And he said, well, that's Bathsheba the wife of Uriah, your general, who is at war. That's who that is. And David said, bring her to me. And of course, they're going to obey the king, so they go get this woman, and they they bring her in. He spent the night with her. She becomes pregnant. And she sends word to David, and she says, I'm with child. And David thought in his heart, Uh uh-oh, that's not good. See, David was the king, and he was a powerful man, and he had a plan. So he sent for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and he said, Uriah, come to me. I want you to give me an update on the battle. I want to know what's going on in the battlefield, so come tell me the story. So Uriah obediently came to meet with David and updated him on the battle, and David said, you know what, Uriah, you've been such a a great warrior, and, and you've been gone from home for so long at war. I want you to go home, I want you to spend the night with your wife, and then you can return to the battlefield tomorrow. And David went to sleep that night thinking that Uriah was going to go home and spend the night with his wife and that all of his problems would go away. But they didn't. Because the next morning, David awoke to discover that Uriah had slept at his doorstep all night. Uriah never went home, never saw his wife. When he questioned Uriah about it, he said, listen, why didn't you go home last night? I sent you home. And Uriah said, how can I go spend time with my wife when the men that I lead on in battle, they don't get to do that. And they're at war. There's a battle going on. And I could not in good conscience go home and spend the night with my wife knowing that my men don't get to do that. So I stayed right here at your doorstep. Well, now David's got a problem. 
So he calls Uriah in again, and he says, listen, we're going to have a party. So they have this party. They get Uriah drunk. David's like, i got to get him home. So they get him drunk. They point him toward his house, push him out the door. Go spend the evening with your wife. David goes to bed that night thinking, i got this thing covered. He's going to get drunk. He's going to go spend the night with his wife. You know, we can blame this all on that. And I'm, I'm free and clear. He wakes up the next morning. Why didn't you go spend the night with your wife? Why are you at my doorstep? He said, how can I go sleep with my wife when my men are in battle? Can't do that. David's thinking, oh, yo, yo, you know, I mean, what, what do you do? So here's what David did. Now, let me just say this. I'm not God, thank goodness. Thank God I'm not God. And I don't, it's hard to say what you would do and what you would say if you were God, but I just got a feeling that if I had been God in that moment, I would have said, you know what, David, we're going to make Uriah the king, okay? We're not going to use you. Uriah's been faithful to me, he's been faithful to his wife, he's been faithful to his men that are on the battlefield. And to me, this is kind of the point where you look at David and you say, David, we're not going to use you and we're not going to use your sons. We're going to use Uriah and we're going to use his sons because he's a better man than you. He's everything you are not as the king. That's what I would have said. But God had made a promise to David. Then David, I mean, the only thing you can say is that he just loses his mind and he does something that you can't imagine that he would do. He calls Uriah in again and he says, listen, I'm going to send a note to your commander, Joab. Just hold still for a minute. I'm going to write out this note. And David wrote out a note and this is what it said. The note said, tomorrow in battle or today in battle, whenever you're reading this, I want you, when you engage the enemy, I want you to engage the enemy with all your armies. I want you to put Uriah's army and his men behind him, but I want you to put him front and center. And when you engage the enemy, I want you to fall away on his left and his right flank, and I want you to expose him in battle. And he writes this note to the commander whose name is Joab, and and he seals it up, and he, he calls Uriah in. He hands it to Uriah. He's sealed this man's, signs his death warrant, basically, and hands him the note and says, take this to your commanding officer. So Uriah is a good soldier. He does exactly what he's told. He mounts his horse, goes back to the battlefield, hands the note, I'm sure unopened, to his commander. And Joab opens it up, and he reads what he's supposed to do. And he's a commander. He's going to do what the, the king says. So when they get into battle, sure enough, he puts Uriah and his men front and center. Everybody else falls away. The Bible tells us that Uriah was such a valiant warrior and such a great leader that his army alone was able to push the other armies as they engaged them all the way back to drive them all the way back to their city. And not until they got all the way back to the city was someone able to throw something off of the wall or the roof of the city, a place in the city, and it struck Uriah in the head and it killed him. That's how Uriah died. And when word got back to David, he was relieved. And he took Bathsheba as his wife. And the Bible tells us that this thing that David had done was evil in the sight of God. And one day there was a knock on the door. And it was Nathan. It was the same prophet who had told 
David, your kingdom will last forever. And Nathan came and stood before David, and he said, David, God knows what you have done, and because of what you've done, you will never know peace in your household. You're just not going to know peace. You will pay for this for the rest of your life. Your kingdom will endure forever because God made you a promise. And if you know anything about the life of David, here's what you know. Sons warred with each other. They murdered each other. One of his sons rebelled against him. He took David's concubine. He took her to the roof of the palace and made a mockery of David. He drove David out of the city. He went to war with his own son, David did. There was rape, there was incest, there was lying. There was deceit, there was unbelievable dysfunction as a family. But through all of that, God never withdrew his promise from David because God's promise to David was grounded and held together not in the character of David, but God's promise to David was grounded and held together together because of God's character and God's promise and who God is. And a thousand years later, a thousand years, let it sink in, okay? Not 50 years, not a generation, not 100 years, not as long as America has existed as a country. A thousand years later, a lot can happen in a thousand years. A lot of things can go wrong. A lot of things can be forgotten. Promises can be broken. Families can forget. You can lose documents. Historians forget. A thousand years later, in the city of David, a Savior was born who was Christ the Lord. You know why? Because David was a good guy? No. Because God is a God who keeps his promise. And he said, one day there's going to come a ruler, and he will be the Messiah, and David, he's going to come through your family. Not because you deserve it. But because I am the promise-keeping God, that's going to happen for you, David, because I made you a promise. And that baby that was born in a manger in the city of David, just as the prophets foretold, grew up to be your Savior and mine. And one day, about 33 years after he was born, he gathered men into an upper room. And he said, you know how God sometimes make big promises? And God made this big promise to David. Hey, I want, you to, I want to let you in on something. God's about to make another big promise, only it's not going to be a promise made with words. This is a promise that is going to be initiated and validated through my own blood. I think the disciples are looking at Jesus at this point, and they're going, what's he talking about? And Jesus broke the bread, and he handed out the wine, and he said, we're going to start a brand new covenant with man, and it goes through my blood. And it will be, it's going to go beyond the words of God. It'll be demonstrated by my death because when I die, God's promise to mankind is forgiveness forever. Forgiveness forever. And it is a promise not based on the commitment and the consistency of mankind. It is a promise like the promise made to David and the promise to Abraham. It is the promise that is grounded in the character and the consistency of God and who God is. And hours later, the baby of Bethlehem would be stretched out on a cross and he died for your sins and he died for my sins and God kept his promise to David. 
And as Jesus died, God kept his promise to me and to you. And the promise was simply this. If you'll come to me by faith, and you will place your faith in my son's death on the cross as payment for your sin, I will forgive you of your sin forever, and you can live with me forever. And there is nothing you can do to reverse that promise or to break that relationship. Because it is not based on your doing, it's based on what I'm doing. And that's why throughout the Gospels, it is Jesus, the son of David. And every time we read that, it's a reminder that our Savior is related to a God who makes and keeps his promises. And just as he promised David, as his promise to David was an unconditional promise, in all of David's sin, in all of David's deceit, in all of his dysfunction, God would not break his promise to David. And that is good news for you and me. That with all of our sin and all of our inconsistency, all the promises we've made to God that we've broken, how many times have we rededicated our life to God? All the things that nobody even knows about in your life and mine that we don't want anybody to know about, we don't talk about. You cannot get God to undo what he has promised because he has promised to forgive our sin. And if you just receive the free gift that comes through the death of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And you say, well, goodness, Brett, if that's true, it sounds like if I could get in on a deal like that, I could just live any way I want. To which I would say, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And even as I say that, I can hear your minds whirring right now. Brett, you can't say that. You can't say that to people. Brett, you can't tell them that they can go do whatever they want to do after they've been forgiven. You can't tell them that, Brett. You can't tell them that. You know why you don't want me to say that? Because you want me to use religion to control people. And God does not do that. And I want to make you a promise about cross lane. As long as I'm the pastor here, and I think even beyond that, because I think we've instituted culture here that believes this, but as long as I'm the pastor here, we are not going to use religion to control people. I don't know what you listen to when you hear me talk, but I'm not trying to control you. I'm trying to show you a better way to live. I'm trying to point you to Jesus so that you can hear a better way to live. But see, you could come to Christ, be forgiven, and then go live however you want. But here's the problem with that. That includes sin, and every problem you've got in this world is the result of your sin or somebody else's. And God knows. When God tells you, don't do that. Don't sin. It's not that God's trying to make you miserable. It's not that God's trying to be some kind of cosmic killjoy. God knows that when you, if you go out and you sin, it's going to mess up your life. And God loves you too much to want that for you. God wants the very best for you. The same way you would tell your kids, you can't play in traffic. Why? I want to play in traffic. No, because you'll get run over and I love you. So no, you can't play in traffic. But I want to play in traffic. And that's what we sound like. But I want to sin. 
And God's like, don't you understand? That's where all your problems are coming from. I love you too much to let you do that. But if you insist, you can go do all that stuff. It's going to cost you. There's a consequence. But the promise is you're forgiven. That's why we call it amazing grace. See, I wouldn't do that. I would not love you like that. You wouldn't love me like that. See, you can push me too far. You can push me to a point where I say, that's it, everybody out of the pool. I'm not doing this anymore. And I could do that with you. I could make you so mad that you would give up on me. Because we just we dispense a little bit of grace, but not a whole bunch, of, not amazing grace. That's what God gives, amazing grace. That's why they call it amazing grace. And God says, you're in not based on you, you're in based on me. You're not in based on how good you are, you're you're in based on how good I am and how good my word is and how good my promise is to you. And my promise is enduring and it's faithful and it's forever and it will not break. Yours breaks, God would say mine doesn't break. Because you didn't get in based on anything you've done, you got in based on a promise that I made to you. That if you'll come to me and you'll place your faith in what I did for you on the cross, I will forgive you forever. You know what that means? That means when you were like five or six or however old you were, eight or ten or fifteen, and somewhere you gave your life to Jesus, you know you were going to church and you, you prayed some simple heartfelt prayer and you said something to the effect of, Dear Heavenly Father, I want you to kind of come into my heart. I want, you to, I want Jesus to be my Savior. And you know what? Whenever you asked him that, he did. He did. And when you were 16 or 17 or 20 or 25 and you forgot all about it and you didn't remember until you were 35, like, oh, yeah, I made a, I made a promise to God. I was going to live my life for God. I, guess what? I forgot. In the midst of all your unforgetfulness, in the midst of your faithlessness and your unfaithfulness to God, God was very faithful to you even when you weren't faithful to him. Because that's who God is. Because he made you a promise. And it was not based on what you or I did. It's based on his word and his promises. It's based on something that happened 2,000 years ago, and it's never going to change. You know what else it means? It means that those of us who became Christians, we've been a Christian a long time, and we've read our Bible, and we've gone to the movies and done church camp and rededicated and rededicated and rededicated and rededicated. We sang all the songs. I mean, you were totally in, right? I'm in. God, I'm in. You were living for Jesus, and you were having a quiet time, and you had like three or four or 20 or 60 Bibles in your house. And then you met somebody, and things in your life changed, or you got a different job, or you became partners with somebody, or you went into business with somebody, and it all changed And you fell away, and you didn't have time for church anymore. And now all of a sudden, I'm really blessed, and I can go by the lake house. And because God has blessed me, I'm going to spend less time with him, and I'm going to go to the lake house. Now, that's not how we describe that, but that's what's going on. And you're just away. And in your mind, one day I'm going to come back. One day I'm going to do the church thing, and I'm going to get straight with God, and I'm going to start reading my Bible again. And one day, one day, one day, I'm going to do it one day. I got some good news for you. In the middle of your faithlessness and your unfaithfulness to God, God has remained faithful to you because he made you a promise. And it was validated by the blood of his son, and you may have pushed him at arm's length, 
But God does not keep you at arm's length where he's concerned. And you may feel alienated by your sin where God's concerned, but God is not alienated by your sin. Because that was dealt with on the cross 2,000 years ago by your Savior. And he is standing on ready, ready to reinitiate and reengage with you whenever you're ready. And you may have walked in here this morning and thought, I'm just going to go to a Christmas thing. God may be looking at you saying, hey, I made a promise to you. Some of you have never really engaged with God through Christ. And I mean, you kind of believe a little of this. You're not really sure what you believe. And I don't know what I think about Jesus. And I read the Bible once in a while. I read it once a long time ago. And it's just all kind of a big blur out there somewhere. But, and, you know, you don't know all about sin. You're not even, you don't even like that word. But you're pretty sure if there is a God, what you're doing is sin. You're pretty clear on that. It's like, yeah, that's probably, probably that's sin. And there's something in you that says, okay, one day... I'm going to nail that down. I'm going to get straight and get right with God and become a church person or be religious or I don't know what terminology you would apply to that. One day I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to quit this. I'm going to get rid of that and break this off and I'm going to get my act together and I'm going to engage with God. I got some great news for you. God's not waiting on you to get all that stuff together. He's not, he's not expecting you to get it all together and then make some grand re-entry. God's not waiting on your grand re-entry. Because 2,000 years ago, he wiped out your sin. He wiped it out. And he is not waiting for a better version of you. What he's waiting for is for you to receive what he's made available to you for free. Forgiveness. Because God made you and me a promise at Christmas time. We celebrate the greatest promise of all, not the coming of a king, not the fulfillment of a promise made to David, but the fulfillment of a promise that was made to sinners because God knew that's exactly who needs it. And he used sinners to bring and fulfill the promise. Let me read it to you in Matthew's words. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not from their efforts, not from their failures, not from the gaps, not from the inconsistencies. He came to save his people from their sins. See, I would have, I would have booted David out of the story. There's no way I would have let David continue after what David did. No way. But God said, no, I can't do that because I didn't promise David based on David. I promised David based on me, based on my character, based on my word. And I'm the God who keeps his promises. There was a day in 1972 when, as a 10-year-old boy, at the First Church of Christ in Florence, Kentucky, I walked down an aisle. It was at the end of a service. They sang that old song, Trust and Obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Trust and obey. You remember that? I remember it like it was yesterday. And I walked down the aisle with my mom at my side, and there's a lot of things that I have, you know, been late to the party on in my life i'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer and sometimes it takes me a while to understand and to figure things out but as spiritual matters go i usually my whole life i've been kind of on top of that stuff i've been fairly spiritually mature 
before most kids my age spiritually, I just got it. I can't explain it to you, I just got it. And as a 10-year-old, I knew exactly what I was doing when I walked down that aisle. Now, I didn't have a whole lot of sin at that point, right? I mean, how much sin can a 10-year-old do? But I knew I needed Jesus, and I knew what forgiveness was, and I knew what sin was, and I knew he'd paid the price, and I was all in on that. So I went forward with my mom at my side, tears streaming down my face, I'll never forget it. And a great preacher in the Brotherhood, in the Restoration Movement, named Wally Rendell, came down out of the pulpit. He shook my little hand. He took my confession of faith, and they baptized me on that February day in 1972. And I grew into a man, and I've become a pastor. And all along the way, my life, like your life, is littered with all kind of sin. I can look back over my life and just want to hang my head and go, oh, can we not talk about that? Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to think about it. Can we just not do that? And here's what I know. In all of my unfaithfulness, God has been faithful. And in the points of my life where God would have, if I'd been God, I'd been tempted to look at me and say, Brett, out of the pool. You're no way. No way. I'm done with you. It's over. Forget it. God has not done that with me. And God has not done that with you. Because he is faithful. Because God is a God who keeps his promise. And that is great news for you and I on this Christmas season. Now, if you're here today and you've never accepted the gift of forgiveness from God for your sin, I'm here to tell you, you don't behave your way into this. There's no way you do that. You accept a free gift from God, and that is the gift of forgiveness purchased on a cross with the blood of Jesus, something you cannot pay. And it's extended to you for free to forgive you forever and blot your sin forever. You never have to worry about your relationship with God ever again. I'm telling you, that's the best Christmas gift you're ever going to get, best deal anybody's ever going to offer you. And, and today, we're not really offering an invitation hymn. I'm not going to come down front this morning. It's not that kind of service this morning. But I, here's what I want you to understand. If I've said something that has made you think, I wanted, I'd like to talk to him some more about that. Please get a hold of me. Let's talk, okay? Let's just, just do that. Let's get together and talk. I'll put no pressure on you, but we need to talk about this gift that's extended. I want you to understand it. I want you to fully get it. Best news you're ever going to get. To, the, to all of you, I offer you a very Merry Christmas. I love you so much. Let's pray. Father, how awesome are you? You're just, you're so much better than us. You're so much stronger. You're so much more determined and faithful. And God, we, all of us in this room have failed you over and over again, and you are relentless in your pursuit and your love and your forgiveness of us. And we just simply stand in awe this morning. And we, at this time of year, celebrate the birth of this baby, but the fact is, God, he grew up perfect, he was nailed to a cross, he rose on the third day, and he conquered the grave, giving us unbelievable hope. And we have a promise from you, and we cling to that promise on this day. 
And for those of us who have received your forgiveness, Lord, and said yes to the cross, we just simply bow to our knees and we humbly say thank you. For the person that's in here, Lord, that has not yet done that, I pray that you would be speaking to them. You'd help them to get over whatever it is that keeps getting in the way, and they would just finally break down and say, God, I'm yours. I don't know why you would want me, but here I am. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We honor you in these moments. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.